Hello, my name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc at Stephen Smith's lab in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Li Wei Tsai, a professor of neuroscience and the director of the Peak Hour Institute for Learning and Memory at MIT. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Tsai. Thank you. So could you first tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where you grew up, and when you decided you wanted to become a scientist? Sure. So uh, I was born and raised in um, Taiwan. I think when I um, look back in my childhood, my parents are always into education, so they, they bought us a lot of books. And I realize now that, you know, I'm particularly uh, attracted to um, books related to science, any kind of science, um, biological science, um, physical science, um, any kind of science. Do you remember any of your favorite books when you were growing up? Oh, you know, when I was a little child, I was very drawn to a lot of books made for children. You know, they they have text, of course, but there are a lot of uh, pictures and images. And I remember I was particularly drawn to um, space science you know, biological science. I love those books um, telling us about insects, mammals, and, and stuff. So um, so I realized, you know, I always loved science <laughs> since, I was, uh, since I was little. And then uh, I love animals. So, so for college, I decided to go into veterinary um, medicine. So I was actually trained as a vet. And I, I really, um, throughout my education, I really didn't have a chance to, um, to be exposed to laboratory um, research. So after I finished my vet education, and as I was thinking about, you know, I was just about to uh, get a license and um, to practice. <laughs> Uh, I all of a sudden had a second thought. I, I kind of feel like I wasn't sure this is really what I would do for the rest of my life. So, um, so I decided to give my, myself a chance to, to look at research and apply for scholarship in the U.S. And then um, I got into a, a master's program in Madison, Wisconsin. So, um, so there, you, you know, I mean, the experience really, um, I would say, um, had a, a huge impact. Going back to your veterinary experience, what, what was your veterinary training? I, I'm not familiar with veterinary training at all. So when you get had your license, that just mean you're, you're kind of able to give dogs drugs? Or did you also like learn how to do surgeries? Or what kinds of stuff were you able to do? There are many different kind of tracks that you can get into. You can do, you know, small animals, um, internal medicine and, you know, surgery. You know, a lot of this surgery mainly for cosmetic um, purposes, you know, cut the ears and tails and, you know, made the dogs uh, pretty and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, or you can go into farm animals, you know, you can uh, deal with um, cows and horses and, and sheep and, and goats. And there are also, like in Taiwan, uh, the farming um, is very uh, active. So you can go into a chicken farm to deal with avian diseases or pig farms um, or even, you know, fish farm. I mean, there are all kinds of different tracks. Um, so I was actually in the small animal, like dogs and cats specialty. 
it seems like a, a, a pretty big decision to completely switch your field and move to graduate school in the United States. So in my life, I made a few of these pretty big transitions. So this was just the first one. Uh-huh. And, um, and so I went, um, I went to my master program and, um, I took classes, um, and then I was first time, uh, exposed to, you know, really molecular biology and cloning and, you know, a lot of that. And at that time, I really, I, you just know it. This is, really what you want to do so um so i applied for the phd program and i got accepted at uh, ut southwestern medical center into uh, a laboratory um it's a virology laboratory uh really looking at viruses uh causing tumors so that basically was my background i was training virology and cancer and then so naturally for postdoctoral training you know i look into that field and at the time at Harlow he just published um, some very exciting papers series of papers about how uh, viral oncogene interacts with tumor suppressor genes and how you know explain the actions of some of those gene products so I applied to him at the time he was at Cosmic Harbor Labs joined his lab and then uh, he relocated his laboratory to Mass General Hospital in Boston I moved with him, and so I arrived in Boston in 1990, mm-hmm. and uh, I haven't left. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you remember sitting down with Ed to figure out what you would uh, work on in the lab? Because what you did in Ed's lab has had you know, a huge impact on your on your career. Yes, of course. I mean, I discuss with Ed very frequently. I really love my experience as um, a, a postdoc in his lab. It was just so intellectually stimulating and people there. I mean, I, I love the, the, the atmosphere, you know. I mean, we all sort of, ex- we were all extremely hungry, you know. We, you know, we work around the clock, every one of us. I, you know, I mean, back then, you know, um, it was, I, I, I was trying to, to explain to, to students because no one would understand. Before uh, cloning new genes, you know, we had to, to pour our own DNA sequencing gel and really sequence the DNA by hand and then read, you know, ATGC and figure <laughs> out all the sequences. That was pretty fun. But, you know, I, I remember, you know, a lot of time, you know, right around midnight, you, want, you wanted to pour a sequencing gel and you realized that all the apparatuses were busy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was really a, a, a very um, memorable uh, period of time. So what was the first project that you and Ed decided that you should work on? So, you know, I mean, his lab was famous for, um, at the time, studying cellular proteins binding to viral oncogene, and especially adenovirus oncogene E1A protein. And then I think I was probably the first one to realize that there is an association with cell cycle components as well. So, um, and from there led to, you know, the identification of a whole family of uh, mammalian second dependent kinases that many of them regulate the mitotic division. Okay, so when the virus infects the cell, the virus is intentionally changing the cell cycle of the cell to better or is the cell reacting to the virus? So the virus, first of all, they target the tumor suppressor genes mm-hmm. and uh, render these genes, I think, uh, because the tumor suppressor genes, they, you know, they normally suppresses cell cycle. 
to prevent transformation. And the virus basically target those genes and uh, render them, I guess, less active. Mm -hmm. So um, to promote, then to promote more active um, cell proliferation and eventually uh, transformation. Okay, but when I identify this whole family of cyclopentane kinases, I don't know what that was. I was very drawn to a particular member of this uh, family of kinases known as cyclopentane kinase 5, mainly because it was very mysterious, the kinase at the time. What was mysterious about it? I couldn't detect the catalytic activity of the kinase in all the cells that I work with in the laboratory. I, I look and look and look, look for catalytic activity. And like all these other kinases, you know, I, mean, I could easily detect catalytic activity. But this one, none of the cells that I was able to detect kinase activity. And I think I sh probably should have dropped it at that time, but um, I don't know what got into me. You know, I decided one day to dissect a whole mouse and took out every single organ. Mm -hmm. ground them up, made lysates, and then look for calorie activity. And um, I guess that really, that was an important experiment because it really set the stage for the rest of my career. The only um, place where this kinase um, is active is the brain. Sounds like your lab was mostly cell culture, so you... Cell culture, exactly, biochemistry, cell culture, yeah. So yeah. doing this experiment where you where you chop up a mouse into a million parts is not, not something that you or anybody else in the lab... Oh, everybody stay away from me. They couldn't stand what I did. Um, in Have you lab. ever done... I mean, it's pretty kind of gruesome in a way. Right? I know, right? I yeah. mean, yeah, everybody stay away from me. And then probably knowing that most people would just drop. You're in a cell cycle lab and oncogene and, and stuff like that. But, you know, and then um, at the time, I also had an opportunity to get exposure to people on different floor in the building. And on one floor, people, they, they're neurobiologists and, you know, they look at brain development. And um, so they helped me to do some in-situ hybridization to look at the distribution pattern of CDK5 and so on. And so... So that really got me into uh, neurobiology. I, I just became very, very interested. So when I was looking for a job, it was uh, 1993, by the way. I was looking for a faculty position. And, you know, here I am, you know, coming from a cancer lab. I was telling everybody that I wanted to become a neurobiologist and this is what I want to do. I want to look at uh, signaling pathways, regulate, regulating brain development and, and so on. So I was really, now today when I, when I think about it, I was really surprised that I actually got quite a few job offers. I have no idea how that. Uh, I don't know today, you know, I'm the director of the Big Heart Institute. I, 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 if I were made an offer to, to myself. <laughs> What would, what would you have thought of yourself back then? You know, I don't know. I had this feeling like, you know, I can, you know, I can do anything if I really want to do it, you know, and I find this feel extremely attractive. And um, and I said, you know, this is what I want to do. And I told all the search committee members, you know, of different schools. And, and so that started my long journey in neuroscience research. So have you asked any of those? colleagues back then what the, I mean I can see what you're saying you know okay this person has found this kinase in the brain but why do I think that this is going to be particularly interesting in the brain during the child talk you know quite a few people asked me you know 
Okay, I know you know you're excited about this kindness, but what if this kindness just not that important? Um, you make an account and there's no phenotype. Um, what would you do then? Yeah. And um, you know, it was an extremely fair question. But then I said, you know, look, if this kindness is not interesting, I'm confident that I'm gonna find something else very interesting to work on. Hmm. And they bought it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you, you, I think you, you definitely proved them right or wrong, depending on that. Also, it's interesting that when I uh, spoke to my colleague back in at Harlow's lab, other postdocs uh, and graduates, they told me that they all thought that I, I was crazy to give up all my accomplishment in cancer research and just drastically change to a, a different field. So you have gone on to publish a tremendous number of papers on CDK5 and its associated proteins such as P30 and P25 in a wide variety of roles. Before we get into it, I just wanted to ask, do you ever wish that this gene and protein families that you work with had a flashier or more accessible name? I know. I was so stupid naming this protein without flashy names. You know, but what can I do? Yeah, <laughs> I should have known better. I wish, you know, I, if I had some experience in Drosophila research, I, I'm sure I will come out with a better name. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I'm, 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 uh, I'm very pleased with my choice. And, you know, we just recently, last month, we just published another paper on CDK5 and P25. I'm extremely proud of this work. So we can't possibly cover your entire field of work related to CDK5. So I thought I'd just ask you about one, one thing in particular. So in 1999, your lab published a paper showing that hyperactivity of CDK5 is associated with the development of Alzheimer's disease. So what reasons did you have to believe beforehand that CDK5 would be disrupted in Alzheimer's? Yeah, I think it's a very fair question. Before we show uh, P25, actually there was already a large body of literature. Although, you know, now when I think about it, how relevant that is, is still not clear. So before I cloned CDK5, there were at least two or three groups of people Independently, they're, you know, all very solid biochemists. They were trying to do protein purification from the brain of different species, you know, either cow brain or pig brain or rat brain of a particular kinase activity that phosphorylates the tau protein. Mm -hmm. okay? And back then, people already know that hyperphosphorylation of the tau protein is associated with neurofibrillary tangle because the tau protein is basically the component of, of neurofibrillary tangles and um, it's the hyperphosphorylated species of tau. So I think there were a lot of activities going on to identify protein kinases that can phosphorylate tau. And of course, you know, I don't know how fruitful that is to identify protein kinases because it turned out that tau has just dozens and dozens of phosphorylation sites and there are like dozens of kinases that can yeah, phosphorylate tau as well. And in fact, today, I'm not sure how direct a role CDK5 has in terms of causing hyperphosphorylation of tau. But back then, CDK5, you know, sort of um, is somehow associated with um, Alzheimer's disease because it was purified as one of the kinases that phosphorylate tau. Okay, so we, so we know that it somehow interacts with tau and it phosphorylates it. And since tau is dysregulated, maybe... It's just dysregulated. It's the logic. The reason why I really suspect that it's particularly the P25 subunit rather than the P35 subunit. So P25 is the cowpain cleavage product of P35 is because 
when I introduce, say, P35 versus P25 into cells, let's say into neurons, you know, if I introduce P35, you know, it, the neuron don't seem to, to be bothered at all. But when I introduce P25 into cells, I mean, they really quickly <laughs> degenerate. You know, I mean, so, so I really like this P25 is actually a, a quite a toxic species. And then, you know, I, I will tell that when P25 is produced, it actually causes hyperactivation. And a lot of time when a kinase is dysregulated, is hyperactivated, it, it, there, there could be deleterious effects. So this and other observations prompted me to suggest that the P25 generation and hyperactivation of CDK5 may contribute to, to Alzheimer's disease. But of course, you know, I mean, look, I published that paper in 1999, and this year is 2014. Yeah. And I know many other laboratories, you know, are still, you know, doing all kinds of experiments to really test this hypothesis. We, in 2003, published the first gain-of-function mouse model P25 and show that just expressing P25 in the brain is sufficient to to induce a number of Alzheimer's-like pathology. And this mouse model remains to be really the only model that shows really profound and meaningful neuronal loss on neurodegeneration, uh, much more robust than other models, and also, you know, increase um, beta amyloid accumulation and, and tau pathology and so on. So CDK5 obviously does a lot more than just uh, phosphorylating tau. So I guess I'm wondering whether there are whether it is similarly dysregulated in other forms of neurodegenerative disease, or is it really specific to Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, it's a very fair question. And I think today the literature linking CDK5 to other neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's disease and um, ALS motor neuron degeneration, and Huntington's disease, and quite a few other diseases. And it could very well be the case. I don't know. I, I, I would say because we only work on Alzheimer's, so in our hand, we have a feeling that the function of CDK5 seems to be particularly relevant to hippocampal function. Mm -hmm. So I just feel that there is something very special about CDK5 and Alzheimer's disease. And the paper published just this year, uh, about a month ago, I think this is the first time we were able to generate a P25-specific loss of function model where P35 function remains intact. And I think usually, you know, from a genetic point of view, you can have gain of function observations, but really it's a loss of function really allow you to make much stronger conclusion. And, and I feel that, that this model, this uh, loss of P25 model shows a lot of uh, rescue of um, Alzheimer's-like uh, phenotype, allow us to really, really be more confident that P25 really is important in mediating Alzheimer's disease. Okay. You've also done a lot of very interesting work on chromatin remodeling and other epigenetic phenomena uh, during learning and memory. And so to begin, could you just give non-cell biologists an over overview of what chromatin remodeling is? Yeah, so our genome is densely packed in the nucleus, and this densely packed genome is in this uh, chromatin structure. And uh, it composes um, not just double-stranded DNA, but um, the histone protein, the core histone proteins, and probably some other proteins that are non-histone um, proteins. So the double-stranded DNA uh, spool around the core histone protein. 
therefore to form this highly densely packed chromatin structure. So the interaction of the DNA and the cohistone protein is actually dynamic. Following some sort of extracellular stimuli, the signals can go all the way to the nucleus and then through chemical modifications of the histone proteins, uh, the interactions of DNA and histone can alter. And this will have a huge impact on expression of certain genes. So what are the what are the basic tools that we have to be able to observe the, the chromatin structure of, of cells? Like, like in the experiment, like how do you actually see that the chromatin is being remodeled? So as I mentioned, the uh, histone proteins undergo chemical modifications. Mm-hmm. And throughout decades, people work out the different modifications such as acylation, methylation, phosphorylation, and so on. So I think there is a large body of literature showing that when uh, the histone proteins is more acylated, then it actually promotes the more relaxed structure of the chromatin. The precise mechanism is still up to debate, but you know, since acylation can really change the charge mm-hmm. of a protein, especially acylation happens on the lysine residue. Lysine is normally positive charged, so it probably can be attracted to the neg- negatively charged phosphate DNA. But now acylation neutralizes this positive charge, and therefore, you know, it sort of sort of relax the interaction of the histone proteins and DNA a little bit. So once this structure is more relaxed, then the idea is that then transcription activators and co-activators then can have access to the regulatory regions of the DNA and therefore turn on transmission. Okay, so going back a little bit, how did you first get interested in looking at this phenomenon in the context of learning and memory? So as I said, we created this P25 inducible P25 transgenic model. And this animal just showed this really profound degeneration, about 30% loss of the total number of neurons in the hippocampus. And later on, also neuronal loss in the cortical regions. And this animal showed tremendous learning impairment. And At what age? So that's the good thing about the mice. This is an inducible model. Mm. So we normally keep the transgene off until the mice are uh, mature, you know, several months old. And then we can turn on the transgene and then we can see a time-dependent neurodegeneration phenotype. Two weeks after induction, there is no neurodegeneration, but we can already see some molecular changes. And by five to six weeks after induction, there's already huge amount of neuronal loss. So this really provides a lot of different advantages because First of all, neurodegeneration happens so fast. And like a lot of other Alzheimer's model, people usually have to wait for 8 to 12 months to start to see robust pathology and behavior phenotype. Here, we just have to induce for six weeks, mm-hmm. and we can already get this robust phenotype. And what's better, you can actually study earlier signaling events prior to neuronal loss and profound neurodegeneration using this model. So, so we, uh, we really try to leverage this mouse model to understand both the early event and also use this as a model to really think about human Alzheimer's patients. Because by the time people are diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, they already have profound neuronal loss in the brain, okay, in addition to all this behavior phenotype. So, 
you know, as you can see in our clinical trials, you know, people are actually trying to push back to earlier and earlier stage for treatment because the argument is once people are already diagnosed with Alzheimer's and all this pathology happened and phenotype developed, it's too late. The neurons are dead. They're not coming back. Yeah, exactly. Too late. So at that time, this postdoctoral fellow, Andrew Fisher, in the lab, and I were just thinking about, hey, whether there's anything one can actually do to at least help these people, you know, they, they have memory loss and, and, and dementia, but um, whether there's anything can be done to actually, you know, sort of, sort of to help their, their cognition a little bit. So that's really got us to look at whether we can just, you know, use this very drastic method to change the chromatin landscape, you know, to induce chromatin remodeling. And that way you really force to increase gene expression and see whether that has any impact on cognition. So that really was the idea behind. So what is this drastic method for changing the chromatin structure? So I told you earlier, you know, among all the different histone modifications, isolation is this one modification that has a huge impact on the chromatin configuration. And also isolation compared to methylation and some other uh, modifications, it's a more dynamic process. So we just say, hey, can we just artificially increase histone isolation? So just across the board, you're just going to acetylate and unravel the chromatin. With uh, chemical inhibitors of histone deacetylase. So this group of enzymes, they're deacetylases. So they normally reduce acetylation. So we're going to just use a small molecule to inhibit these enzymes. So this would then, you know, result in increased acetylation. So that's what we do. And then and see whether or not it, it protects these mice from the deleterious effects of, of turning on the transgene? Well, we actually didn't really look at all the deleterious effects, okay? The mm-hmm. only thing we care about is behavior. Ah. So um, in the first study, what we did was following treatment, we, you know, we sort of did two kinds of behavior paradigms. One is to look at new learning. So we treated these mice for, for like a month, four weeks, and then control group treated with vehicle. And then after treatment, you know, we train these animals with, you know, your normal hippocampus-dependent learning paradigm and then see whether, how well they learn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we already knew, you know, the, the P25 transgenics, you know, after degeneration, I mean, they have very impaired hippocampus-dependent learning. But we were really surprised to see that the group of mice treated with this um, HDAC inhibitors, they have much improved hippocampus-dependent learning. And when we look at the size of the brain, it's not like, the brain, you know, didn't undergo degeneration. I mean, they, you know, I mean, they definitely show atrophy, you know, and the number of neurons is reduced. But when we stand for synapses, we found that normally uh, parallel with, with neuronal loss and memory impairment, uh, synaptic density is also markedly reduced. Mm-hmm. But those animals treated with h inhibitors, they have improved hippocampus-dependent learning, but they also have much higher synaptic density compared to the vehicle treated group. So the second paradigm we did was, again, trying to model human uh, phenotype. So you know that Alzheimer's disease is a progressive neurodegeneration, and in the earliest day, people sort of lose episodic memory, sort of cannot remember as well. But then when people develop, develop dementia, they even 
lost their remote memory, sort of lifetime memory. So we wanted to model that a little bit too, to see whether this treatment actually can help these people to sort of reconnect <laughs> with their past a little bit. So the second experiment we did was we use a very strong paradigm, obviously, so uh, contextual fear conditioning. We train these animals first before they undergo neurodegeneration. So again, this is the advantage of our inducible model. We can decide when we want these mice to have neurodegeneration. So we train these mice first and then induce P25 expression and then waited until um, they develop neurodegeneration neural loss, okay? And then did the test. So it turned out, the fear conditioning, because it's such a robust training paradigm, it usually can induce the fear memory that lasted for life in rodents. But after neurodegeneration, we found the vehicle treated group, they show tremendous reduction in freezing behavior. But the H9 inhibitor treated mice, again, they show significantly higher hmm. fear memory. So this would suggest that this treatment not only can improve new memory ability, but also can help the animals to retrieve remote memories. So we were just really, really surprised and fascinated by this result. Well, what is this drug and what's its status in terms of clinical trials? So, of, of course, I mean, it started a long journey. We wanted to better understand the mechanism, as you say, you know, what residue on, 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 on histone that are um, accelerated, but more importantly, is there a particular enzyme, you know, that operates in the brain? And in 2009, we published a paper, uh, we identified this enzyme, histone deacetylase 2. It has this very unique function that's not redundant with any of these other enzymes. And in 2012, we published another paper showing that this histone deosolase 2 itself is also regulated. So the action is that this, this particular deosolase, for whatever reason, in neurons, it's recruited to the promoter of genes that participate in supporting synaptic plasticity and therefore memory formation. Okay, a, a plethora of these genes, including immediate early genes, CFAS, ARC, and AMDA receptor subunits, and receptor, I mean, a whole bunch of genes that are regulated by this HDAC2. So HDAC2 normally is recruited to their promoter and therefore re reduces histone oscillation and therefore keeps these genes not active. Until a signal comes in to dissociate HDAC2 from these genes, and we found most dramatically in Alzheimer's disease, HDAC2 level is totally increased and its binding to the targets also hugely increased. And this results in really a epigenetic blockade of the expression of this gene supporting memory formation. And I really think it's important in memory impairment and dementia of these patients. And this really gives more reason to develop pharmacological agents against this enzyme for therapeutic intervention. So in terms of uh, what's the status today, you know, like main development of many other drugs, right? First of all, this is one member of a large number of genes showing similar structure and catalytic activity. So in terms of drug development, first you need to identify small molecules that can differentiate HDAC2 from all these other histone solids. And that is not easy. But that is important because 
you want to avoid toxicity. And usually the toxicity it hits more than your target. Would RNAi or, or gene knockdown be a, a reasonable strategy in this context? Well, we already show in mouse models, gene knockdown is totally, you know, great in ameliorating Alzheimer's phenotype or even pathology. But in humans, you know, I think gene therapy is still controversial. I know there are a lot of companies that are based on RNAi strategy, but I don't know how many of them have succeeded in clinical trials. Yeah, I think that, I think there's a lot in clinical trials right now. Probably the next couple of years will be very telling. Right. So that there are quite a few companies, they have this um, HDAC2 program in terms of developing small. So uh, I certainly hope that one or more of them will be successful. Okay, so in closing, we have some shorter answer questions. So if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student specifically, what advice would you give yourself? What advice I would give to myself? Wow, that's a difficult question. I would say, you know, uh, when I was young, I sort of feel I have a whole world in front of me. Anything good happened, I usually do not savor it. I would just say more and more good things will happen. Um, it's endless. Sky is, you know, the limit. Um, now when I think back, I probably should really take more time to appreciate the good things that happened in my life and not just appreciating the circumstances, but appreciating, you know, all the people that are involved and really thank the circumstances, including everybody involved. Yeah, I think I should, I should do that. Yeah, yeah. Once the circumstances happen, you can't go back in time. Yeah, but yeah. I just want to thank a lot of people accompany me in the journey. This include my PhD advisor, postdoctoral advisor, mentor, my colleagues, my graduate students, my postdocs that ever work with me. Without them, I wouldn't be here today. So now a more embarrassing question. What's the most expensive thing that you've broken uh, while doing an experiment? Ooh, um, wow. I'm a very cheap person. <laughs> <laughs> I seldom purchase anything that's uh, expensive. <laughs> um, I really cannot remember that. Okay, I it's all right. So I'll ask a different question. Uh, the history of science is filled with stories of accidental discovery. So what is your favorite accidental discovery, either of your own or uh, one from history? I would say, you know, as I described to you, in terms of my own work, that was, you know, back then, you know, the, you know, the technology was, you know, you, for Western blotting, you do your chemiluminescence, and then you stay in the dark room waiting for the uh, autoradiograph to come out to see the result. Numerous uh, sleepless nights, you know, I waited by the machine. And when I saw the result that I finally, for the first time, detected CDK5 activity in the brain, I say. And, um, you, you know, I still remember that. that <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of feel, you know, I told you that was such a random experiment that no one would have done it in a lab. And I was crazy. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, uh, thanks for speaking with us today, Dr. Sai. Yeah, nice talking to you. And thank you all for listening. We'll hope you join us next week when our guest will be Daniel Colon Ramos, an associate professor of cell biology at Yale University. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senior, Mark Petalina, and Adi. 
E, and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neurightwest.org.